Then Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As you make your way into St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church in San Francisco, you will find yourself in a round room, surrounded by light. An altar, much like this one, stands in the center of the room, telling you that this is a worship space, but there are no pews, and not too many places to sit. However, your eye is caught by some bright colors just up above you, and so you look up and you find that you are surrounded by an icon, one which fills the whole circle around you, all the way around the room. The icon looks ancient, painted with techniques used centuries ago, but the closer you look at it, the more you realize that the people of the icon are not all so ancient themselves. All around you in this room are the saints. Now there are saints you would expect to see, like St. Paul and Martin Luther and the prophet Isaiah and King David and Mary Magdalene. But look closer and you will recognize other faces too. Anne Frank and Cesar Chavez and Desmond Tutu and Eleanor Roosevelt. You'll see St. Patrick and John Coltrane, St. Paul and Charles Darwin, Thomas Aquinas and Thurgood Marshall, Teresa of Avila and Sojourner Truth. Ninety saints all the way around the room, musicians, artists, scientists, mathematicians, scholars, traditional figures, and modern prophets. And they are all dancing, all of them in a great unending circle, led by a very big dancing Jesus in a vision of God's love that has no beginning and no end. 
today is, as we've said, All Saints Sunday in the life of the church. And on this day, we pause for a little bit to celebrate the saints, the people who have in some way shown us the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Those may be people we know and people we've never met. They might be people who cared for you in a time of need and, or someone who challenged you to grow and change. Your saint might be a friend who came and sat with you in a time of grief and loss and just held your hand. Your saint might be a beloved, a beloved one who changed your life forever, even though they are no longer here today. The saints are of all times and all places, and they include the one who's sitting right next to you this morning. As the Bible sees it, saints and sinners are the same people. Now, this is not exactly how most of the world uses the word saint. Billy Joel sang about it once. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun, he said. Which is a good song. It's a very good song, but it is really bad theology. Sorry, Billy. <laughs> saints are not the people who have it together, who have figured it out, who know how to behave and follow all the rules, who are inspiringly, unendingly, sometimes gratingly good, as opposed to the rest of us sinners who are just stumbling our way through this life. Nope, each of us, each of us, says the Bible, and said Martin Luther some 500 years ago, each of us is both sinner and saint, both child of God and broken mess both beloved and imperfect, holy and ordinary. And we're saints not because we've behaved well enough to earn the title, but because that's who God made us to be. Stamped with God's image, every single human being on the planet, right from the beginning, no matter how many mistakes we make along the way. Maybe that's why we read from Luke chapter 6 today, which gives us a good sense of the breadth of God's presence in all of our experiences. We're reading from the beginning of the gospel. Not too much has happened so far. It's only chapter 6. Jesus has just called the disciples to follow him, and they've done that. And from the beginning, things go pretty well for them. Jesus heals people. He feeds people. He casts out demons. He challenges the religious authorities. It's going not too bad. And the disciples probably think this was a good decision they made following this guy. Things like they look like they're going to be smooth sailing from here on out. Should be fine. When all of a sudden Jesus turns to them and says, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are hungry and who are hated for my sake, and who look as if they have nothing going for them. And woe to you who are rich and full and laughing and happy and have sterling reputations. Usually when you're beginning a new project, something big, you want people to come on board with you, you're trying to convince them to follow you and trust you and do as you say, you want to start with the good stuff. 
the possibilities of success, the dreams of what may be, the image of who you become if you just come along for this ride. But Jesus starts out quite differently. Not with all the glory and the fame and the success. He starts with what happens and who we are and how we are when all of that's stripped away. He starts with the mess and the broken things, the hard parts and the cold reality. He asks us to think about what it means to be blessed and where it is we find our sense of safety. And he's willing to challenge our sort of ordinary ideas about that. He starts with how you feel when you're up late at night worrying about how you're going to pay the bills or if you're going to get your kid into a rehab facility or how it is that you're going to say the word divorce out loud. How it feels when you walk out of your job for the last time and not by choice. With who you become and who you are when everything is gone and there's nothing left and you're poor and hungry and crying and you do not feel like a saint. Oddly enough, Jesus calls all of that blessed. There are a lot of words I would use to describe being poor and hungry and grieving, but blessed is not even in the top ten. If you have ever been in that place, and most of us have and all of us probably will, then you too might feel like blessing is a strange word to choose. But perhaps Jesus is reminding us that even those scary places that strip away everything we thought we had protected ourselves with, those places leave you vulnerable, but they might also leave you open. They are scary, but you are paying attention. When you're hungry, you can't float aimlessly through your life. You can't convince yourself that your money or your job or your list of successes will keep you safe. The way that standing on the edge of a cliff is not comfortable, but you will know exactly where your toes are, and you will be able to feel your heart beating and count every breath while you're there. Now note that Jesus doesn't tell his disciples that they have to go out and be poor or be hungry or invite suffering for themselves on purpose. And he doesn't say that God will smite the people who are rich or full or happy. Instead, he reminds them right from the beginning that on the one hand, none of these walls we build will save us. And on the other hand, even in the worst and hardest things, God is present. Being poor and hungry and grieving, those are not romantic ideas. They are painful and hard. And yet from those experiences, many of our ancestors and faith have spoken of their love and their faith in the goodness of God. Wealth doesn't protect us 
from things that come. And yet sometimes it's when we lose the things we thought we had gained that we recognize the love of God and the love of our neighbor in some way we weren't able to before. Now this is tricky stuff. If we go too far down this road, which is easy to do, it might start to sound like Jesus wants us to be miserable or even sends us the hardships so that we can experience a blessing in it. But that is not at all consistent with the rest of Jesus' life and ministry. Over and over again, Jesus healed the broken and fed the hungry and reconciled those who were, who were in pain with one another and comforted the grieving and loved the rejected. And never once did he tell anybody that God wouldn't give them more than they could handle. Instead, he took their hands and he gave them bread and he reminded them of who they were and then he gave them to each other. He told them that together they could do impossible stuff like love their enemies and pray for those who hated them. He told them not to judge and to forgive as if they were a cup of wine overflowing, unable to be contained or stopped or controlled. He told them to bear good fruit and to heal those who were hurting and feed those who were hungry. And he told them what, that when they were those things, hurting and hungry and afraid, that they were still the beloved of God. That they were just as much saints as sinners. And that nothing, not even the grave, could contain the love from which they came. Now remember that I told you that at St. Gregory of Nyssa in San Francisco, where the saints surround you in that unending dance, that there is an altar in the center but no pews. That's because the saints above are not the only ones who dance. There are not pews in that worship space because the congregation, whoever's there on that day, the saints of flesh and blood, they dance too. So as the worship service comes to a close, the congregation begins to move. Everyone takes someone's hand. And if you are new, they will make sure that some of the regulars help you out. And a cantor teaches everybody a single, simple step until all together they are moving. Not perfectly. Perfection is not the goal. Joy and participation is what they want. And before you know it, the song and the dance below is echoing the song and the dance of the saints above, of Anne Frank and Mary Magdalene and Desmond Tutu and St. Paul and Jesus and Thurgood and Eleanor and Francis. And that may be the best image I've ever known of what All Saints Day should be. That you and I, who are still taking these slow and imperfect steps down below, are dancing to an echo of the joy that is the saints above. That both in blessing and in woe, we are led in this dance by Jesus who will settle for nothing less than a love with no walls and no boundaries. 
so that we can take each other's hand and show somebody the next step. Or, in the words of Native American writer Linda Hogan, suddenly all my ancestors are behind me. Be still, they say. Watch and listen, for you are the result of the love of thousands. Now that's something you can dance to. And so we should dance to the love of God that will lead us on. Amen.